Hey, welcome to Rushcast. Got a real treat for you today. We are talking to somebody new. Somebody new to Rushcast. I guess everyone's new to Rushcast. But I think you're going to enjoy today's episode. We got some interesting results from last week's digital discussion. We'll get to that later. I want to say hi to uh sergey from mexico we got a listener in mexico now and we're hitting a bunch of different countries now and that's really cool to me some people sent in some audio clips we'll get to those later but right now i want to do things a little bit backwards and just open right up with our guest Today's New World guest for this week is a classical pianist and teacher. He's a keyboardist, programmer, and producer for countless artists over the last 35 years. And he also works in film, uh, film music in movies like Big Eyes and Slumdog Millionaire. And his synthesizer playing can be heard on 1985's Power Windows and 1987's Hold Your Fire. Tomorrow's his birthday and everything. We got Andy Richards on the show. Hey, Andy. Hi, Jack. Good to talk with you. I'm really happy that you're here because my audience and my listeners are some of the biggest Power Windows and Hold Your Fires supporters uh, in the Rush community, is what it seems like. Everybody loves these albums, and we talk frequently about how underrated they are, so they're really going to enjoy what you have to say, I think. Well, I hope so. In the same way, I absolutely loved working on the band, with the band on those two albums. They were both fantastically fun, creative, and happy times for me. So you were almost like the closest thing to being the fourth member of Rush at that time. It's the closest thing we ever have to that. How did all of this go down? I guess so. I mean, a little bit. The uh, a session musician did a lot of work um, playing on jingles and commercials. In Manchester, England, <clears throat> and I came down, met Trevor, started working with him, and the very second track we worked on together was Relax, for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which did rather well, and that particular year, or the year later, in 1984, I was lucky enough to play on Frankie's Relax, Two Tribes, and George Michael's Careless Whisper, and it, from, a, from a guy who was a kind of, a, I guess, a reasonable fish in a, in, a, in a small pond like Manchester to suddenly being exposed to this in London and playing on my first hit singles, it was slightly, slightly overwhelming, but, but very exciting. And during that time, because I was playing on these profile tracks, a number of producers wanted to use me and try me out. And one of those was a lovely guy called Peter Collins, who I worked on with Nick Kershaw and a number of other uh, artists and Peter uh, got the gig of producing Power Windows for Rush and I know that he told the band that he wanted to bring this guy Andy Richards in to do some extra keyboards and to sort of add something different to the sound mm-hmm. and I, I can honestly tell you I, I was told that the guys in the band weren't that crazy about the idea mm-hmm. and I was sort of I think under probation I turned up and I was booked for 10 days and and the understanding if they didn't like me, they'd shake my hand and tell me to go away. <laughs> well, I had such a great time on Power Windows. Uh, I actually finished in seven days. And bless them, they still paid me for the 10. <laughs> and it was just an incredibly comfortable, 
natural brotherly experience in a way I had with them. They were charming and delightful. And uh, I just had a, a great time. And it was muted at one point, like, hey, Andy, do you want to come and play live with us? So maybe for a time I was the fourth person in the band, although I, I never saw it like that, really. I saw it as these three phenomenally talented guys and just how lucky I was to be working with them and having such a great time. Wow, it's it's amazing to me that I... Let, let's jump into this. The, the one question, you know, I told a few people close to me, hey, I'm, I'm going to have Andy Richards on the show. This is the guy that did all the synthesizers <laughs> on Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. And everybody <laughs> took me and they're like, Jay, Jay, listen, you got to ask him one thing. Okay. Uh-huh. They all said the same thing as if it was this new idea. What else would I ask you? Uh, how much of the synthesizers were your ideas or your sounds? And how much, was, how much artistic space did the band give you? They gave me a lot of artistic license. I think they were very gracious. <clears throat> of course, anything I did, I could have walked away at the end of the session. They could have said, no, we don't want that particular part on our record. There were obviously parts that Getty pointed me to and said, look, we, this is the sort of thing we want here, and we'll, we'll, we'll go for that. And there were parts that maybe Getty had programmed up and I added to. But there were definitely, you know, you can hear in parts these very fast stabbing brass stabbing things flying around the place yeah i mean that's 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 me i mean that's what i would do one of the things i would do so i think it was a mixture of them suggesting ideas to me and me also offering up a lot of ideas and i think perhaps for that reason that i offered up a lot of ideas i was invited back to uh, play a couple of years later on hold your fire so it's a combination of things i mean i was also aware that what i was doing had the potential to sort of at least for that time, partially changed the sound of the band, given their, their sort of historical three-man lineup. And I was also aware that, you know, it wasn't necessarily something that everybody would enjoy. You know, we, we all have different tastes in music. But I do know that they, they, they liked what I did. I mean, at the, uh, was it the manor, it's at the manor when we were doing power windows, because I, I always like to kind of go crazy and really kind of go mad with things. Mm-hmm. I remember Getty turned up one day with a, with a, with a, wait. Say that again, Andy. I lost and you for I, a second. All right. Where should we go back to? You said one day Getty came in. Wow. We're losing him. White sheet and put it around my shoulders. So I sort of looked a bit more like red. As I was doing crazy stuff, it was very funny. And I mean, to me, that was a mark of respect and friendship. And it was it was just great. And I mean, I I had quite a lot of keyboards and quite sophisticated computer music instruments, and also a couple of very powerful synthesizers. Sorry, powerful um, sequences that I used. Mm-hmm. So some of that really hyper fast complex stuff, I would literally program in real time in a sequencer, and then the, it would be triggered off tape. So there were lots of different aspects to the way I worked with them, but every day was a joy. When you first heard the material they had, because I recently found online um, Power Windows in its entirety, but they're demos. And they're, uh, uh-huh. when the band was in process of writing these tunes, and the most interesting part was that there were no hardly any synths on the, uh, the tracks correct. yet. There were some here and there, yeah. like the songs that really revolved around one synth part, they were present. Um, but yes. when you heard the original tracks, 
was did it was it instant for you? Did you go, I know what this song needs, or did it take some experimenting? It wasn't like that. I'd be in the studio, they put up the multi-track and we'd just start. Wow. I wouldn't I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't in there uh, listening to the demos, coming up with ideas. No, it was li- literally on the hoof, if you like, or off the cuff. It was of the moment, which for me to be very detailed about specific sounds. Having and talking to you, of course, it kind of triggers the brain and it starts to click in. And in terms of stuff I did and how it worked, sure. But it was all it was all of, all of the moment, Jay. It was instant, really. Do you ever, you know, these two, like I, I said earlier, these two albums get a lot of crap sometimes, especially from yeah. fans who aren't as into the the band as a whole and all of their uh, discography. Do you ever hear yeah. backlash for this album and kind of think, well, I, you know, you hate the synthesizers on those albums. Well, I that that's me. I am those synthesizers. Do you ever take it personally? No. No, never. I mean, how could I? I mean, I was there working with three great guys and a wonderful producer and Peter Collins, and I was having a great time, and it was stuff we did. And uh, the band had the option to use it or not use it. And, of course, you know, we don't all like the same music. Some people I know have said that it sounded too much like an 80s synth-pop band. But that's kind of what I was doing at the time. What I'm doing now is kind of different to that. See, I, I've but, uh, always thought the opposite. I've always thought these two albums were buried in this synthesizer era in music in general, but they don't sound mm. like your typical 80s synth rock song to me. No, they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't, Jay, because uh, the, the, the cornerstone of, of Rush's music is Neil, Getty, and Alex, and Neil's drums, and the fact that a lot of the album was played live and whatever I would do on top of it would never redefine Rush really in terms of their genre of music. Sure. But I, I, I do accept that, you know, not everybody likes keyboards. Not everybody probably likes my keyboards, but that's what I did. That's what I was asked to do. I mean, I think, I think possibly, and I mean, I would not want to speak out of turn here, but, you know, obviously bringing a guy in at a part of keyboards would kind of, kind of, kind of extrovert approach to playing keyboards. I'm sure it probably took them a little bit of adjustment to say, hey, do we like this? Is this what we want? But I guess they liked it enough to ask me back a second time, which was obviously a great honor for me. So this sounds like it was more of a session gig for you where, um, and, and I've had Jacob Sakeli on. Jacob played cello on Rush's most recent studio album. And I asked yeah. how he got the gig, and he said, well, you know, this is how it works in California. <laughs> you know, you have people that know who you are, and, and the band says, we want a string section, and they go get the, the people they know are right for the gig. So Peter Collins comes to, you, comes to Rush and says, I got the guy you need. Was it, was it a session gig well, but- in your career? You there, Andy? Bring you in. And so it was more of a personal recommendation based on what I did as a musician rather than going and saying, let's find the best string players in LA and use them. It was a much more personal thing. And obviously, when it came to Hold Your Fire, the decision to use me again was obviously a mutual decision between uh, the band and Peter themselves. 
you know, that that was what they did. So although I, I was a Simon Session musician, I have to say working with the guys in the band, I felt more like a member of the band than a session musician. They never, never made me feel like a session musician, ever, ever. And that's what we've come to expect from these guys now. Oh, so- they're fantastic. I mean, <laughs> what I have to say to you, and I have to say to all the Rush fans sure. listening to this, these guys are incredible. I remember um, sitting around the breakfast table uh, during making of Hold Your Fire, the breakfast table at Ridge Farm Studios. And the three of them would be there. Their friendship and the repartee between the three of them was just extraordinary to listen to and to watch. You know, the cracking jokes, the friendship, the warmth, the, the, the camaraderie. It was really something special. And I'm sure that is, that's an in- indication, if you like, of one of the reasons why these three guys have stayed together for so long. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty fantastic. In fact, I have to say, in terms of my happiest times working as a musician or a session musician, whatever you want to call me, I'd say that working with uh, Neil, Getty and Alex was probably some of the happiest times of my musical life. Wow. It was fantastic. I think it would definitely be for me, too. <laughs> I think a lot of us would probably think the same thing. We're with you. Uh, so it's, you come back for Hold Your Fire, pretty. and is yeah. is there a different approach? I mean, we're talking two or three years between the two albums. That's a large chunk of time for that technology back then, right? You must have had different equipment and, and different musical ideas, or was it the same kind of approach? I, I, I did. I mean... When, when I worked on uh, Power Windows, I had, you know, a top-of-the-range PPG uh, German computer with uh, sampling and all sorts of jazzy things happening in it. And, by the, and also a few, a few keyboards, a few analog keyboards. And when it came to Hold Your Fire, the big part of the PPG, PPG system had gone, and I was using a large Fairlight Series 3 sampling machine. Although I still have my PPG sounds because a lot of those very brittle keyboard sounds you hear, kind of a sharp, you know, tingly sounds, that's all PPG, which it's an amazing sounding synth. I mean, it's a unique sounding synth. There's nothing been like that ever since, really. Uh-huh. So, yes, my technology changed over two years. I spent, you know, my fair life, probably sixty to seventy thousand pounds investing in this monster of a machine. Sure. But um, it seemed like the people I worked with, who who I used it with, they they enjoyed it. They they liked what it did. So yes, the technology moves on very quickly. To you, was there a difference in what Rush had written that you were adding sense to? Did you get to hold your fire and go, "This this sounds different," or "Oh, this is just exactly what we were doing on Power Windows. It's an extension." No, I, I never think this is exactly what we're doing on Power Windows. Uh, very fast and, and very intense, intense in a nice way. So really, I I wasn't really thinking of or analyzing what they were doing or what they'd done or what they were re- what they'd written. I was just simply responding immediately to what I was hearing and doing the best I could for them. Sure. That's, that's how it worked. You're, so, so you're a good musician. I, I really wasn't <laughs> in a position, to, I, I wasn't really in a position, if you like, to critique uh, the difference in style between Hold Your Fire and Power, Power Windows. I mean, having said that, I love the sounds that they, they, I love the songs, I love the sounds, and that's what I reacted to. And perhaps because they're such fine songwriters and musicians reflects also on my ability to compliment their music in 
whatever way you want to interpret it. Sure. Now, I'm Andy, I'm 23 years old. Um, I only know of the mid-80s synthesizer technology. It's all like folklore to me. <laughs> you know, it's all things that happened a long time ago. Uh, but I have, yes. I have listeners who are synthesizer players, older guys, and they asked me to ask you what you were using. So you listed a few. Was that all of them? Can you, can you get really geeky? Right, well, and well, oh, okay. So in terms of the, uh, the instruments I've used on power windows, there was a uh, PPG 2.3 synthesizer linked to a PPG wave term sampling module, an on-screen display of choosing samples and whatever, uh-huh. an Oberheimer expander module, and also a Roland Super Jupiter uh, rack-mounted analog synth. And those were also controlled externally by a Yamaha QX1 sequencer, which enabled me to input data very slowly and for it to be played back at insane and furious speeds if necessary. In other words, enabling the computer to perform certain tasks that I just couldn't achieve myself. You know, you know, there's very hard kind of ricochet brass riffs that you sometimes hear on the, on those two albums. Yep. Uh, that's all done via one of my sequences, but that's all played into the sequences so that it then plays it back. So the only difference really on Hold Your Fire was that the PPG wave term sampling bit went and I turned up with this enormous Fairlight computer, which at the time was the sort of state-of-the-art sampling machine. There was... There was nothing else like it in the world, and it was a beast. And so my large computer changed, but everything else was pretty much the same. The keyboards were the same. I, I basically just used a, a big computer and, uh, and uh, a couple of synths. It's all done like that. So we're, let's, let's talk about your other projects around the same time as Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. Were, were the sounds similar? Were they vastly different? I mean, if it's the same technology, maybe it is similar, right? I think that every artist has a particular requirement. Uh, I mean, around that time, I was working with, uh, I mean, uh, Propaganda, who um, who were sort of a uh, German experimental band. Uh, Pet Shop Boys, George Michael, Gary Moore, the late great Gary Moore, the guitarist, who was just sublime to work with as well. I remember that <clears throat> when I turned up at... Uh, Ridge Farm to do the keyboards on um, on Hold Your Fire. I think I was met by Alex, who came up to me and, uh, and said, uh, "No, it, was, it wasn't. It was it was Neil. Neil came up to me and said, I just wanted to shake your hand and just say what a fantastic album that Propaganda Secret oh, a Secret Wishes because he loved that album and it's just very interesting to note with that." Uh, with, with Neil, what an extraordinary sort of eclectic taste in music he had. And here was this kind of legendary rock band, you know, doing their, I think, 12th album. And here he was listening to kind of very high-tech, I guess, electro-synth pop with a German tinge in the form of propaganda, uh, of which I did a lot of the keyboard work. And so he came up, shook my hand, and said how much he liked it. So... At that time, I was I was working on some sort of high tech pop stuff, and you know whether it be propaganda or Pet Shop Boys, but also in the rock genre with uh, Gary Moore and Phil Linnett and, and Rush, of course. Uh, I want to know. I always ask anyone who's been involved with the recording process with Rush. Um, I ask them 
about their relationship before they were involved with Rush's music and after they were involved. So, so I'd like to know, you know, was there an album before Power Windows that you enjoyed as a listener or a fan? Are there albums since you've been involved that you've really enjoyed? Uh, but I also want to know how you th- did you in any way critically analyze the synth playing you heard on Grace Under Pressure, for example? No. <laughs> in fact, all those two or three questions, I have to say no. And I, I don't mean to sound like some sort of Luddite or whatever. Uh, not, not all music that I, or, or, or musical or bands that I play on other people's records is things I listen to, not because I don't like them, but because there's so much else to listen to. And I, I feel in a way that, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had a time with Rush, which was the two albums, and then they moved on. They, they had other requirements, and they, they became more sort of uh, back to basics, I think, after that, which was great. But uh, I think possibly the strength of me working with the band was that I really didn't know too much about their music. I wasn't like, if you like, a fan at the time. Although I was in awe that I was being asked to, to play on the 11th and 12th albums of this, this extraordinary Canadian rock band. Yeah. I think in a way, because I wasn't a, necessarily a fan, I was able to do a much better job. If that makes any sense to you. It makes total sense. Absolutely. I mean, not that I, would, not that I would in any way compare myself with the stature of the extraordinary Johnny Depp. But as far as I understand it, uh, he never watches his movies. He never goes and sees his movies. It's, it, he goes in, he does a job, he gets out, and he moves on. And for me at that time, I was so busy, so incredibly busy, that uh, I, I actually hardly had time to listen to any music. I mean, in 1984, I worked 330 days of the year. And they were long days. I mean, never shorter than 12, maybe 14-hour days. And I don't, you don't get time to listen to much other music when you're doing that. You are literally just running on adrenaline and perception and hopefully using your skills to um, complement and help the music of the artists that you're working with. I mean, obviously, I've listened to Rush before, and I've certainly listened to Rush albums since. But I... It was never sort of, I wasn't brought along because I was a Rush fan. I was brought along because of the work I did and Peter Collins wanting to invite me in and uh, contributing something. And I, I think that the fact that I was coming at it from a different angle than just being a rocker, I think probably helped. And I imagine, but, I know, imagine the band really appreciated that at the time, too. Well, they were, they were very generous, very, very, very generous with me. And I remember... Um, you know, at the manor in the evenings, we'd sit around the, uh, we'd, we'd sit around the, the kitchen table and uh, Getty would go into the uh, room at the back and open the freezer up and out and come the Stolich Nair and we'd have a few, uh, a few vodkas. And that particular area of the kitchen was called the launching pad. <laughs> nice. Uh, I mean, we never got a hand, but it was a nice way, a lovely way to sort of relax at the end of the day because we, we, we worked very hard. I mean, we were in there like, like 10 in the morning until 10 at night and it was full on, maybe with just a short break for lunch. I mean, we weren't playing around. We were working very, very hard. Well, how, how was having, the studio? How was it in, in general compared to other studios you've been in? Uh, 
Well, both the studios I worked worked on worked in with the band were residential studios rather than London recording studios. Mm-hmm. The first the first one was was the Manor, which was uh, used to belong to Richard Branson, and which is where Tubular Bells was recorded. And it was lovely. I mean, you know, you have you're, you're looked after incredibly well. The rooms are lovely. You have cordon bleu cuisine. Uh, you're treated incredibly well. I mean, it's, it's a luxury lifestyle, but you know, you spend an awful lot of time uh, in the studio. So when you're out, you try and have a bit of fun as well. So that was the manor was a lovely, lovely, lovely control room. And then we went to Ridge Farm for Hold Your Fire, which is right out in the country, which is more of a sort of, what's the word? It's more like a campus, really, uh, with lots of little houses and cottages and the studio was separate. And Ridge Farm was was wonderful as well. I have to say, I'll, I'll answer this question before you ask me, uh, if you were to, if, well, if you were to ask me which was my favourite album to work on of the two, I would have to say Power Windows. And I, I think the reason for that is there was that sort of, that spark of never having met them before and just coming in and just doing it. It's a bit like, if you like, uh, you know, that, that time when you meet someone very special in your life and that, that everything just goes zing and you have the most amazing time and you don't really want to stop and question it. You just do it. Obviously, with Hold Your Fire, we were kind of, they, they knew what I could do, and so it wasn't necessarily as spontaneous, but that's not the right word. But it, obviously it was uh, two years later, and we did, d- digested what had happened with Power Windows, so it didn't quite have that um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It, it wasn't quite as like, wow, is this going to work or not? Is this, this is so new and so fresh. But nonetheless, it was, a, for me, a great record to work on, a fantastic record to work on. Right, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you're looking for – uh, approval. I will. I'll tell you right now. Hold your fire is fantastic. <laughs> I know you're not. I know you're not like. Oh, hold your fire was awful. I know you're not saying that. But no, no, I mean, no. I'm simply saying that there is that moment. You know, when you when you get together with a group of musicians and you click, whether it's you're playing live or whether you're working in the studio under much more controlled circumstances, there is that that first time when the thing clicks that is. Very special, and it's something that I don't think you ever really quite repeat, or, or, the, or certainly the experience will be different next time. Maybe just as great, but certainly different. And I'm sure any, any musician uh, listening to this talk with you and me would, would, would agree that, you know, if you have a really special moment, just recreating it can be very, very, very difficult. I mean, I can look back to working with uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Trevor Horn, and the way that relax happened was a complete sort of spontaneous fluke and set of circumstances. When I say relax happened, it was the fourth version of relax. That's the one that you know. And it was just of a moment. And from then on, from then onwards, you know, all the rest of the work with Frankie was, uh, was great, but you never, ever quite hit that thing again or if you do you're very lucky you're very very lucky i mean generally it's harder work in in terms of you have to work at it you have to just try and put beside the things or the flukes that happen to produce the first thing and you uh, you know you do your best but there is this thing in music of the moment you know of being in the moment just as you can be in the moment in so many other aspects of your life Mm -hmm. i'm I'm curious about 
the evolution of of keyboards and synthesizers and because you do a lot of film now and yeah you know so so i guess what i'm asking is where where did your career go after hold your fire did, when did it become less synthesizers or did it become less synthesizers well it's kind of changed i mean you know you have to bear in mind i'm, I'm a classically trained pianist mm -hmm. and as i was studying classical music i was already in in, in like jazz fusion bands and i had a, a fender Rhodes and a mini moog and I, I had synthesizers, and they, they became a sort of a part of my musical repertoire, if you like. And I think probably the peak of the sort of the big, expensive synthesizers uh, was the, uh, the Fairlight Series 3, which I used on Hold Your Fire. Uh, you have to bear in mind that, this, that, that later on in, in the 80s, uh, a new computer came along called an Atari 1040ST and also a sampler, which is an Akai S1000. And in many ways, it could perform many of the feats uh, for, uh, you know, literally a 30th of the price of the heavyweight keyboards I was working on. And then suddenly uh, computers start coming along, synthesizers get cheaper. People suddenly find they can program themselves rather than needing a musician or a player to come in and do it for them. Mm -hmm. And then you find computer-based recording systems such as Pro Tools emerging. Uh, you find that more and more people start working at home. You find that record companies don't want to spend as much money on, uh, on record recording studios for their bands. And then you find that uh, a whole host of stuff changes online where people are just streaming music and not paying for it. And slowly, the whole industry is just just simply just turned on its head. So that by the time 2000 came, I, I decided that I would start moving into film music and working in 5.1 surround. And I had my own very, very nice studio in West London, where I started working on film music and scoring and mixed, doing a lot of mixing and production. And uh, now, funnily enough, I'm, I'm at the stage where I'm working on my own solo album. I'm also working with a couple of artists I worked with in the, uh, in the 80s, including the very lovely Claudia Brooken, the lead singer of Propaganda. And she's actually going to perform a couple of tracks on my, on my album. So I'm, I'm, as I'm moving forwards and moving more and more into sort of cinema, I'm also moving back into working with, uh, with artists and, and bands as well. And my whole album, my whole album is being mixed as as I as I work on it, both in stereo and in five point one, and that's what uh, that's what I'm trying to achieve. So this this album will come out next year. It will be in both formats, and it's I suppose a nod to the fact of things I've learned, but also things I want to kind of retrieve from the past as well. Sure, part of my musical heritage, if I if you like. You said you had a Fender Rhodes. Do you still have a Fender Rhodes? No, I don't have a Fender Rhodes. I did have a Fender Rhodes. I've had a couple of Fender Rhodes, actually. Uh, great keyboards. Aside from but, the fact I mean, that they weigh as much of, as a, a fire engine. They didn't weigh as much as a, as a grand piano or, or a large Hammond organ. <laughs> but those were, I mean, when I, when I first started touring with, with the folk rock band The Straubs, who I think had some success in Canada as well, I, I had like a ton and a half of keyboards I was lugging around. Or I wasn't, a, ro a roadie, a very nice roadie was lugging it around for me. I mean, you know, it was a lot of hardware. I mean, 
I've now gone deliberately to the other extreme where I have a very powerful Pro Tools HDX system and all my effects, all my keyboards, everything is virtual as plugins in the machine. And I think almost without exception, I can say that the iteration of uh, plugins and keyboards that I'm using now virtually in my Pro Tools system are better than the originals. Wow. And certainly a lot more reliable and certainly a lot lighter. I mean, there's yeah. everything I, comes up on the screen. I haven't got to plug anything in. <laughs> it's there. And I, I, I make that choice because I find it a very expressive medium in which to work. And also much more immediate. It also means that if I get up a very complex synthesizer patch or whatever, it's saved. I never have to think about saving it. I never have to think about backing it up from a computer, from, a, from an analog synthesizer onto a bit of tape or whatever. I mean, you know, the, the technology has changed. But I, I will tell you one thing. This is, I, this is kind of stuck in my mind. Just over a year ago, um, Trevor Horn suggested that, that, that me, him, Stephen Lipson, the, uh, the engineering guitarist on Relax, and JJ Yenchalik, who ran the Fairlight at the time, we all get together and we, we talk about Relax and sort of recreate how we actually made the record. So to do this, uh, I, I needed to get hold of a, a Roland Jupiter 8, the synthesizer I was using at the time when we made that record. And obviously, I didn't have one anymore. I've got a Jupiter 8, but it's a plug-in in my Pro Tools rig. So I ordered this thing from a hire company, and it, and it turned up in this enormous flight case. And I thought, oh, my God, this is heavy. This, I had no idea this thing weighed so much. And I opened it up. And you know the most nostalgic thing I had at that moment is when you open it up, and you smelt the, uh, the foam and the polystyrene and the glue in the flight case, that thing just sent that that sensation sent me rocking right back to the early eighties, early mid eighties. You know the smell of the flight case. It has a particular aroma, and, and anybody who has flight cases will know when you open it, it's quite pungent. And that that was kind of impressed me a great deal. But of course, I don't experience that anymore because everything is in one place in my back room in, in a five point one room at home, and uh, I just turn the Mac on in the morning and boom, it's all there. Uh, it's a lot different, isn't it? Very, very. <laughs> but but it, it's it's wonderful. I mean, of course, I think probably the thing I, I would say most about my virtual way of working now is that I don't spend as much time in studios with other musicians. Huh. And, you know, so you never I – can, I can say to you, hey, I had this – I had this great experience yesterday. I was looking at the screen and the sound came up and it was like, wow. Now – you really wouldn't want to know about that. And I guess very few people would. But, you know, when I talk to you about, you know, working with three very gifted and fabulous musicians in two wonderful residential studios with a, with a great producer, you know, that's of interest. So in many ways, you know, my experience has changed as a musician. And I think the saddest thing is that, you know, there are a lot of very talented people out there getting into music and they will never be able to have those experiences of, you know, working in smelly, beer-ridden, bars and pubs and clubs and working in fantastic studios with amazing artists because much of that now is gone forever. Where can, where can we find your stuff? Where can we go to see news about your new album? Where do you want to send people? Well, my album isn't finished, so I'm not putting it anywhere yet. Uh, but it, it's going to be finished, I hope, by um, 
spring, mid next year. And when it is ready, it will be on iTunes and obviously on, uh, on Amazon and a number of other places as well. Uh, but uh, obviously, it'll go onto my, my Facebook page. Uh, and I'll obviously kind of give people maybe a few little teasers next year what's happening. And, uh, and it will be announced there. And then I will be hoping to do a – I've been asked if I will. I'm hoping to do a 5.1 preview of it at uh, Shoreditch House in, 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 uh, in London. Shoreditch House is one a part of the Soho House Group where a lot of artists and media people and musicians hang out. And uh, so anybody who wants to look, join me on Facebook, by all means, uh, just put your name up and say who you are and what you want, and I'd be delighted to, uh, to converse. No, seriously, why not? Why not? Tell me who you are and what you want. Andy, this is, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about our favorite mm. band and two of our very Absolutely. favorite albums. This was a really, really yeah. nice inside look at all of that, and we really appreciate it. Great. And happy birthday, man. Oh, bless you. Thank, thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you. So uh, it's been great talking with you. Is there anything else I can, I can let you know? I mean, I've talked quite a lot now. Hell, right. nearly uh, three, quarters, three quarters of an hour. I know. Listen, hey, the, the, the more the better in the world of podcasts. People, are, people always <laughs> apologize, and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I need as much as you got, especially when Andy Richards comes on my show. I, you, you better believe I'm going to pick your brain until I run out of stuff. Well, that's very sweet of you to say so. I mean, what I, what I would say is that, you know, I've been fortunate enough to play with some great artists and on some great records. But there have also been times when I've played on records and they've been a disaster and <laughs> never happened. I think that, you know, if you like, if you like what I did on, um, on Power Windows... I think it's, it's a lot of it's just down to the guys, down to the guys and down to Peter Collins and setting it up so that I came in and I was just, I felt just on top of the world. They made me feel special and made me feel like I could just go for it and be myself. That I never, ever, ever once felt self-conscious with them. Ever. And, and that's special because that's not normal or that's not always the case with other bands? Well, other gig, gigs are all different. I mean, you know, no two are the same, as no two people are the same. Uh, quite often I would, I would uh, go into sessions and people would say, oh, I love that sound you got on Relax or that sound you got on Welcome to the Pleasure Dome or that sound you got on Propaganda Secret Wish. Can you do that for us? That was not Rush's approach at all. It was like, hey, Andy, you know, this is us. That's you. Just let's just go for it. And so there was never any sense of giving me a reference point in terms of my style or what I'd done in the past in terms of what they wanted me to do. And I think for me, I like that a lot. I think that's one of the things that made it special. And this was cool. It, I never, th years ago, growing up as a, a growing Rush fan, I never thought yeah. I'd get to talk to the guy that put those synths on those two records, you know? <laughs> Those were those were two <laughs> records that I kind of connected with, and I think a lot of other people did as well before any of the well, other stuff. So, and it, it's it's really cool to talk to you, I, and you too. And you have to thank a couple of guys on uh, on Facebook who who said, you know, can we connect you with Jay and uh, maybe maybe have a talk. So That's right. uh, we got Fred, uh, listener Fred Holmes, also from the UK, who 
sent That's me a right. message and said, hey, I got Andy Richards here on my Facebook. Is that something you're interested in? <laughs> and actually, well, in Andy, that, I, oh, go ahead. No, as I say, in that case, we have Fred to thank for that. So, hey, Fred, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, Fred, you're the man. <laughs> He's um, definitely the I actually had read a book about Rush this summer, and they mentioned you several times in the making of those albums, and I thought, well, why haven't I got that guy on my show? Um, and I, <laughs> I looked for you, and and I, I deemed it uh, impossible. You were, I figured you were just someone who was off the grid. But once Fred gave me your website and your Facebook, I thought, I must be really bad at the internet <laughs> because he's actually kind of easy to find. Well... I guess that you know I've I've got a, got a website which I'm changing. I'm I'm lucky that a couple of people wanted to do, do a wiki page for me, which always helps. Uh, and um, you know I'm, I'm on Facebook with a number of Rush fans who are always incredibly charming and courteous to me. And uh, I've never gone off the grid. But having said that, I'm not really a great sort of self publicist, if you like. It's just like I do what I do. Uh, having said that, I mean when my album comes out next year, I think I will be much more of a self-publicist for a short while anyway and see 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 what it happens but it's a it's a different sort of offering than the stuff i generally used to do in the 80s certainly all right andy well thanks a lot man jay it's been an absolute pleasure and uh if i can just say to all your friends and all your rush fans that uh it's great talking with you and i, I hope they enjoy this and uh that maybe we'll meet again someday Talking to Andy Richards was awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to him. Really, really cool guy. And had some really neat stuff to say about the making of that music. So last week I asked in the digital digital discussion to rank your top 10 albums based on their artwork, their cover artwork. The results, I have a three-way tie. <laughs> I have a three-way tie for the winner. Um, let's see. Moving Pictures collected nine votes. 2112 collected nine votes. And Permanent Waves collected nine votes. So, Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures right next to each other chronologically. A lot of A lot of you said, I'm not including... Uh, moving pictures because you know I don't think it's a great album the music's great and some people are going to connect the the cover visually with how awesome the music is so they're going to throw it on there and I think you're those people are right but nevertheless that's what they voted for with eight votes we had power windows fly by night got eight votes and clockwork angels got eight votes right behind them was seven roll the bones a Farewell to Kings and Grace Under Pressure. And then six votes, Test for Echo, Vapor Trails, and one other one. Uh, Hemispheres got six votes. So here's a, my thing with album artwork is it can be cool, but it might not look the best. So I guess maybe we should have specified which, you know, which album artwork is coolest. And which album artwork is the most aesthetically pleasing, right? Uh, you can take moving pictures and all the cool things that are happening in that image, but it doesn't look 
in my opinion, and this is kind of where my head was when we started doing this, on a shelf, it doesn't like pop. And that's what I need my album to do is pop. Not always. Like the first, the debut album pops the best. It, it's it's perfect. And the, the logo is still used today, which tells you that it's a, it was successful. But they don't all need to pop. It's just sometimes that's, that's just what kind of sticks with me and resonates with me a little bit better. Fly by night, you walk by, it's in the store it's it's there it's in your face and it's it's got deep colors and it's just great imagery all around i don't think clockwork angels pops while i think it's cool and it's cool to look at it's just a little too much red for me and i'm the guy that likes hold your fires cover (laughs) it's just a little too red you know um i still think it's awesome the same with uh, Farewell to Kings and Power Windows, one of my favorites, is has a lot going on, but it's not the best image. Like, maybe that's a cool image for the back of the album. I, I don't know. You know, these aren't cemented and concrete opinions. They're, they're just things that I think about often, or at least more so right now that I'm thinking about them as we discuss these covers. I also think the Vapor Trails remix cover is exceptionally good because it it does a good job, a great job of matching the change in sound on the album. So they remix the album. They're like, hey, listen, David Bottrell, we need this to be cleaner. And David's like, cool, I could do that. And then they go to Houston and they're like, yeah, we're, we're uh, cleaning up this album's sound. So we need something for that. And Hugh Simon's like, well, I'll just take the old one and make it look cleaner. And that's what he did. It, it, it looks exactly how the album sounds. He did such a great job of mirroring those two ideas. And that's not to discount the original artwork at all, which I still love. Not many people sent in, oh, I like, you know, I really want to show some love for the original artwork. They were both great. I'll be the first to admit that I don't understand some of these covers and the themes that are involved. You have to remember, I'm not as old as you guys for the most part. And I wasn't around when a farewell to Kings came out. And I'm definitely somebody who enjoyed the music and was attracted to the music before the lyrics, before I was paying attention to the lyrics, before I was paying attention to themes and thematic material in the lyrics or politics in the lyrics i'm reading a book right now that is dives way deeper than i've ever gone into neil's lyrics and themes on certain albums so i'm learning but i don't know what a farewell to kings means as an album i don't know what the concept is what the theme is what the album cover means same with uh i mean hemispheres is a naked guy (laughs) Hemispheres of the brain. I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of there. Uh, I don't think anyone really has a clue what's going on on Grace Under Pressure, but I, I'll be the first to admit, like I don't really understand Permanent Waves. Everyone's like, "Oh, Permanent Waves is cool because it's so much going on." I honestly, guys, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in Permanent Waves, and I will admit that. But the nice part is, I have this show, and I can ask people who are smarter than me. I always say that I used to think I was the smartest person in the world when it came to this band, but I'm quickly realizing I'm not. 
So now when I don't know things, I just have to embarrass myself, admit that I don't know it, and ask you, the experts. So if you know what those mean, and you can send me a well-written explanation or even a recording, I'll uh, we'll share it. My buddy Chad, we call him uh, uh, what is correspondent. Our, our correspondent Chad, like the the Daily Show with John Stewart, would have correspondence, right? Chad, is, that's what Chad is to me. He's the Stephen Colbert to my John Stewart, or at least, yeah, I'll label him as that. You're welcome, Chad. <laughs> Here's Chad with a little bit of audio. Hey, Jay. I want to know, are there any riffs that you've heard in a Rush tune that you hear for just one moment of the song, or maybe it's played a certain way by one of the players again, but the rest of the band's not locked in the same, that you just wish you could hear again on a track because it's so great? For me, a few things I can think of are the intro bass riff, the headlong flight, the one really cool breakdown riff in Natural Science, maybe even the opening riff for Show Don't Tell. What do you think? Anything you can think of? Yeah, there's. I don't know if there's a riff that I want to hear again in another song. I, I'm not sure what you meant there, but uh, it is an interesting question. Yeah, there's a lot of them are bass related. I have the bass solo in Caravan and the following riff after that. The bass solo in *Malignant Narcissism* as well. I, I, when I, when *Snakes* came out, I remember saying to my father, "This is the greatest bass lick Getty ever wrote." I don't know if that's true and if I believe that now, but at the time, that's what I labeled it as. In *Peaceable Kingdom*, there's a groove in the middle of the song that I really enjoy, and it doesn't. It never comes back, really. Uh, it's sort of like a it's sort of a humorous kind of groove where they're they're almost like and I know that was going to be an instrumental at the time they were it, it almost sounds like they're gonna just break into this ridiculous shred fest uh, after this this groove here it is I've always loved this E minor groove in the Necromancer. Clockwork Angels has a really cool groove in that tune because the between the bass and the drums, half the band is in 6-8 meter and the other half is in 4-4. Four, four. And the two of them over the top of each other work really distinctly and it's one of my favorite grooves as a musician to, to play in. Here it is. So you hear there that the drums are in six. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three. Well, the bass is in four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. All right. Those are called subdivisions, people. Virtuality obviously has a, a killer riff. Like, say what you want about that tune. It's got one of the nastiest riffs there is. 
and the the genty kind of thing going on at the end of Grand Designs, I thought was really unique in Rush's discography. Chad sent me one other audio file. Here it is. Hey, Jay. What I really love so far that you're doing is you're really introducing the rest of the audience to these concepts that you hold so strongly onto, such as the fact that Rush really has been four or five different types of bands over the years. Or how it's great to look at how a piece of material in the Rush discography plays into what's around it, whether it's song order or album order. Thinking about both of those things, there's one album that really stands out and makes me wonder, well, what do I think about this? And that's Grace Under Pressure. I want to know, what's your thoughts on this? In particular, how it falls in the discography. Permanent Waves is a great place for where it is, transitioning out of the proggy hemispheres material into moving pictures and what's probably their biggest radio hit friendly album. So what do you think about Grace Under Pressure? Does it transition from Signals into Power Windows? Is it a standalone album? For me, it's kind of a dark horse, dark sister album to Signals, and sort of how it's written and the overall soundscape it portrays. I want to know. What's your thoughts? Yeah, when I first heard that audio file, it was he did a Chad did a great job of uh, being a radio personality there because I, I was a listener at that time. I heard it and he said, there's one particular album and in that instance, I'm guessing. I'm going, oh, I think it's going to be this one. I think it's going to be that one. <laughs> it was like a weird moment for me where I, I was the listener and Chad did a good job. Uh, and I encourage any of any listeners to do the same if they want to send in audio clips like this to me. I definitely think... Grace Under Pressure is related to Signals and equally related to Power Windows. So maybe it is a good bridge between the two and a good transitional album. I would argue Grace Under Pressure is more quote-unquote synthy than Power Windows or Hold Your Fire, by the way. For those who say those two are too synthy. Well, Grace Under Pressure was even... I, ha- I had a music teacher in high school who played synthesizers. Uh, he loved Genesis. And he liked Rush as well, but Grace Under Pressure was his favorite ever. He would see, we played a few gigs together, and he would sit during breaks and ta- tell me about how much he adored that album. And he said, and then, what was the next one called? And I'd say, Power Windows. He's like, yeah, Power Windows. He's like, and Power Windows comes out, and they have that first track, Big Money. Yeah, yeah, Big Money. And Big Money was great, but... The rest of the album was like, uh, I don't really get this. I don't really understand. You know, this isn't what Grace Under Pressure was. And I'll never forget that conversation because it showed me another wall that people put up. Like for this guy, that wall where he was done with Rush was between Grace and Power Windows. I'll say this about what Chad said. For me, Grace Under Pressure is the only album where the song order seems interchangeable. It starts with Distant Early Warning. That, that one's easy. It makes sense that we start with Distant Early Warning. Red Lens is just before the end. That makes sense as well. 
between the wheels at the end. That's cool. Everything else in the middle could be swapped and I wouldn't, it wouldn't feel weird to me for some reason. Like I couldn't even, I don't think I could even tell you the order after Red Sector A of the tracks on that album because they don't feel like they really have any identity. Not to say it's a bad thing. It just, it's interesting. Like if I, if I gave you moving pictures and it, the, let's see, let's put, uh, let's put red Barchetta. Let's switch, switch red Barchetta with witch hunt. That would feel weird. <laughs> you, you can't deny that when you listen to it, you'd be like, ah, oh, this is not how that's supposed to work. But with Grace Under Pressure, I feel like it sort of does, at least for me. And let's talk about this red, uh, this red lenses um, slot. We're talking about the second to last slot, and it's the most, it's the space they reserve for their most eccentric song on the album. I'll show you what I mean. I don't mean the weakest song. I don't mean the worst song. I don't mean the weird. Maybe I do mean the weirdest. The most eccentric song on the album, the one that's kind of different than the rest, is just before the last track. I've talked about how the last track has a special meaning as well on each album. Here's the one. Listen to all the listen to all the songs that appear just before the last track on the album. Tears, losing it, neurotica. Hand over fist, emotion detector, different strings, witch hunt, Tyshawn, anybody? Red lenses, madrigal, wish them well. I think it, that's a that's a thing you can't deny, in my opinion. And and if you omit malignant narcissism. If you just extend, like, pretend malignant narcissism and we hold on are, are collectively the end track, you could say the same about Good News First and Bravest Face, I think. They're the most eccentric on Snakes and Arrows. So Carl H. sends me an email. He submits his his ranking for the cover albums. Or album covers, I should say. <laughs> the, he submitted his ranking for feedback. i got to make sure I don't get that backwards. He said... Roll the Bones has a secret message on the bottom of the the dice wall. The wall of die or dice. He says he heard there was a secret message at the bottom of the wall where the numbers are a little bit more randomized. I've never heard of this. And I told him I'll at least mention it on the show and see if any of the experts that listen know. Because I would love to know about that. I've never heard anything about it. Hey, you can follow us at Rushcast2112 on Twitter. And I try to keep that thing going. I try to tweet once in a while. And you'll see when the shows are up in real time. Daryl Hurst tweets at me. And he's uh, today, actually. And he says, the second, verse of, the second verse of Kid Gloves might be the first time we hear Getty sing a harmony. Now, this is fascinating. Because it reminded me, this is something I had thought about when I was still in high school. I'd only been into the band for a few years. And I realized these the harmonies Getty does in the studio are really nice, except they don't happen in the older stuff. And I did the same thing Daryl did. I went back and listened to everything, listening for vocal harmonies. A desk camp part where Getty sings a melody, but then sings a harmony line above it. 
and I had concluded that Power Windows was the mark. The Power Windows was when he started singing harmonies and he really went with it after that. But Daryl's right. If you listen to the second verse of Kid Gloves, that might be the first time we hear him sing a harmony. If you've done your homework and you know of something before this, send it in. Let me let me know about it. Because we know they they didn't really use it that much after, right? No, definitely not. He wasn't he wasn't singing that many harmonies after Grace Under Pressure. It's not like he overused them, the harmonies or anything. Hey Jay, so I was looking at some uh, Rush lyrics online, and when I was reading the lyrics to Red Barchetta, I noticed that every website had the same typo, and it says, laughing out loud with fear and hope, when it's actually supposed to be meow 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 with fear and hope. Time for today's digital discussion. What one future song would you play for Rush in 1974 to show them what they'll become? We're time traveling now in honor of Back to the Future and that anniversary. It's 1974. You time travel back to 74. And you meet these young, this young band, this young trio, and you say, "Listen, I know you think." Before and after is cool, and Working Man is the greatest thing ever, but this is what you're going to do in the coming years. And you just give them one song, just to show them, like, hey, this is what you're going to sound like, and you can see their reaction. I thought it had to be a track from my three favorite albums. So I initially thought Caravan. Caravan is, is heavy enough to get the job done and I think Caravan represents what the band is really well but then I'm like well let me think about these other these other two uh, animate stick it out uh, I don't know I don't know if counterparts really as, as awesome as it is if it represents their entire career as well as Caravan, as Caravan would and then I went to the last album wait a minute big money I deemed Big Money as the greatest guitar solo in Rush's catalog. On an older episode, I said that. Uh, the Big Money is gonna be the song I play for them. It's got it. It's got everything. It's got a nice amount of synths. It's got equally as great guitar playing. The bass part is nuts. The, the lyrics are cool. The drumming is awesome. It's got everything. That's what I would play. It's so hard, you guys, to choose one song that you're going to play for Rush in 1974. But let's try it. Let's see uh, what we all think. It'll be fun. We could, you could also go the other route. Like, uh, hey, you know, Working Man is cool and Finding My Way rocks, but this is what you're going to do in a few years. What you're doing is a pretty rockin' tune, but check this out. Here's where you're headed. 
in the mood is cool, but here's the future, bud. I like to play games. Games are fun. This has been a really fun episode. I'm glad you were here. And we'll see you next week, guys. Brought to you no, by... No, I didn't say it. Brought to you by Knickerbocker. <laughs>